This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thanks to everyone around the world who keeps tuning in. The audience keeps growing and expanding geographically and I'm amazed by that. That's one of the positive things of the World Wide Web and the internet is how we can all reach and connect in these different places. And yet we find our tribe scattered amongst the globe. And that's what this has become. Today's show is special to my heart. It's really a dear friend who I've known for a long time. I've always admired. She's had a ton of talent. She's drop dead gorgeous. And she has this great heart and sense of humor. She was on Hee Haw. She's been doing music forever and she has this miraculous story she's going to share about a new record that's actually quite old it just blew my mind it's her first visit please welcome my great friend victoria hallman thanks for coming on finally thank you so much for having me i can't wait to tell my story and to talk to you and see where this conversation leads because our conversations tend to kind of take all kinds of interesting detours we'll see (laughs) We've had a few shows that we just didn't tape that we talked for hours. I remember once being in your house in Nashville, we sat for hours just talking, talking, and having this deep talk while all these people were around us. That's right. We went into a went into a bubble, and then it was like, oh, we better we better share you with everyone. One thing I know about your story, it almost feels like you were born singing. Will you share with the audience a little background? I mean, you were entertaining by the age of four, I think. Well, I actually started at three. Um, you know, this is it's that kind of thing where I go, well, how long do we actually have? Because starting at three is, you know, it makes for a pretty long story. But yeah, I started on radio when I was three. You know, I am a singer actress, as you know. And I actually did start first as an actor with a friend of my mother's radio program. Back, do you, you remember probably, I don't know, back when they used to have like noontime shows, and that would someone would be broadcasting out of their home. And it, it, it was like a talk show, but I know in Birmingham, we had Joe Rumor. Everybody in Birmingham knew, knew Joe Rumor, and he broadcast out of his home on the Mighty 690 WBOK. Uh, and he'd go, oh, look, Madonna's coming in and <laughs> talking to his kids, you know, stuff. So anyway, I was on a mother, my mother's friend's show when I was three years old because she heard me at my house reciting the night before Christmas, which she thought was quite charming of a three-year-old to be able to remember that very long poem. So my first gig was acting. Then I won a Shirley Temple lookalike contest. You had to send in your picture. And I begged my mother into sending in my picture to a local TV show. It was called Cousin Cliff. I thought I looked like Shirley Temple, but as you well know, I have very dark hair and my hair has always been this color. And my mother kept saying, no, 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 Vicki, Shirley Temple's a blonde. (laughs) You don't look like Shirley Temple. And I kept insisting, yes, I do. My face looks like her. So I finally talked to her into sending in the picture. She sent it to the show. And the way they were going to announce who the finalists were was, you know, every week they would show another finalist that was going to get in the top five. And one I watched every day, praying, hoping that they would show my picture. And one day they did. There I was. So when we went to the show for the finals, I actually didn't win. I got into the finals, five finalists. They had this mountain of toys that the winner was going to get. I didn't get the toys, but as they say in the liner notes of this new album that we're going to talk about, I won a recording contract <laughs> ultimately because the host of the show also had a Saturday show that was sort of like a local Ed Sullivan. You know, they used to do those local variety shows on the, on the local TV channels. And my grandmother insisted that I sing for him, even though my mother didn't think I looked like Shirley Temple and she didn't think I could sing either. But my grandmother certainly did. And the host agreed, had me to start coming singing pretty regularly on that Saturday show. Then one day he came to my mother and he said, you know, there's a new and the first and only, we think, 
recording studio that's opened here in Birmingham. And I think they might be really interested in hearing little Vicky. So she took me to this uh, recording studio, Heart Records. And indeed, they were interested in me and they signed me to a production contract. And I ended up recording, interestingly, a song that was one side, it was spoken word. It was a, a tearjerker thing called Send My Daddy Home um, about a little girl who was praying that her daddy would come home for Christmas, even though he was actually dead. And very sad, and, and I actually cried when I was speaking the words because it was so sad to me, and it turned out very well. The other side was a Christmas song that my grandfather wrote, and it did well. Um, this was like, and I was on, oh, the really interesting part, the label that I signed with was a Nashville label, and some of my label mates were Floyd Kramer, Mother Maybelle Carter, Hoyt Axton, Jimmy Riddle, I could go on, but those are important to me. Those because Floyd, you know, I ended up as a hee haw honey on hee haw, as you've already told the audience. Jimmy Riddle was a regular on hee haw. He was part of Riddle and Phelps, who did what we called ETH, ETH. I, they would slap themselves, and I don't know how to explain ETHing, but anyway, he was a harmonica player. And Floyd Kramer was part of hee haw's million dollar band so he was a regular mother maybell was on the show so you know it, it was just and hoyt axton certainly so i was on a label when i was six years old with people i would end up working with you know all the decades later it's just kind of like i don't know there's a stephen king book about how history does repeat itself and that we get little pointers to what's going to happen to us someday so I feel that that was a, a very early pointer to what was going to happen to me when I grew up, what I was actually going to be when I grew up. Do you feel it's your destiny, Victoria? Do you feel this is your destiny, this whole thing, and you just basically embraced it? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it must be my destiny because, it, because it's just I've never done anything else. And I'm, I guess I'm one of the few people who actually have been in the music business and show business, TV, you know, radio, recording all my life literally and I've never had to do anything else to earn a living and that's really rare <laughs> in this business so clearly God meant for me to do it the universe whatever you believe God is it was meant for me to do and I have come to know although I didn't know for a long time I didn't realize that being an entertainer is is quite a wonderful thing. I mean, I think there was a long time when I it came so easily to me, I didn't realize what a gift it was to be able to entertain people. And I didn't really understand the importance of entertainment. But as I've gotten older and, and really with the internet, I've started hearing from a lot of Hee Haw fans and fans of mine from Birmingham back when I was a teenager, all kinds of people who said some of my happiest times were spent listening to you. you know, so how, how, how much a part of these lives I actually was. I mean, being able to make people on Hee Haw, for instance, little show that nobody thought was ever going to do anything and actually was on 25 years, to be able to draw people together and people did watch as families and have a happy hour every week, forget their troubles, go to that magical place called Cornfield County. That's no small thing to have entertained people that way for a week, you know, probably for an hour every week. And I now realize that that's that's a wonderful thing that, that I was allowed to do by the powers that be. I mean, I, I just... You know, I, 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 yeah, it just happens. So thank, thank you, Lord. Thank you, universe. Thank you, you know, ancient aliens, whoever did it. <laughs> I love that show. It was fun. It was corny as all hell, but it had a charm and it was semi addictive. addictive. And then also the musicianship and the, all of a sudden it'd be amazing musicianship or singing and stuff like that. And, and jokes and stuff like that. How did you end up on the show? I, I knew Sam Lavello, the producer, not as well as you. I met him in Nashville a long time ago. What a great guy. Did he find you? Did you find them? How did you end up there? 
no, Sam didn't. No, Sam did not find me. Um, and and I did not find them. <laughs> yeah, they did find me, I guess, ultimately. Okay. I was singing. You know, do you want to back up to how I met Buck Owens, maybe? I was going to do Buck next because then lead that into the album. But why don't we start with Buck? Go ahead and talk about Buck. Well, because to get to Hee Haw, we have to we have to first start with Buck because that's how I got to. Okay, okay. Let's start with Buck, the, the meeting of Buck because that's quite a story in itself. Okay, I had I had been working with Bob Hope. Now that takes us back and back. Bob Hope was the one who actually took me to Hollywood. Uh, he had heard me in Birmingham and asked me to start opening shows for him. So. Eventually, he said, if you come to L.A., I'll help you, you know, and all that. And he did. He got a very good manager for me named Bill Loeb, William Loeb, who managed Rosemary Clooney and a lot of uh, the singers of that ilk and of that era. But he was he was specialized in female vocalists. So that was a good thing. He also booked one of his many things he did. He booked something called the Orange Fair, which was a huge fair in San Bernardino every year. Just like they used to have huge state fairs and each big fair would have a grandstand show and big stars played these grandstand shows. So all week that week of my, I think it was in March or April, I had been begging to go with him. He would go every day to the show and, you know, cause he had acts who were performing and I would beg to go cause I wanted to ride the roller coaster. I didn't care about the shows. I just, I was, you know, I was a kid, early twenties and he would make up some excuse why I couldn't go every day, every day, every day. And I wanted my friends to go with me. So finally Sunday was the last day. And he said, okay, well, you know, you can go this, this time, but, We've got to be back by nightfall because I've got things to do with my family and baby, baby. you know, it's a Sunday and they're doing things. So I'm in my little jeans and all that. He get he, when we got there, the fair manager, we went back, you know, to the office, fair office, and they gave me this big roll of tickets for the midway. So I went out midway there and oh, on the way there, he said, Well, I'm sorry that we couldn't get you to go until today because Today is country music day. And I know you're not that crazy about country music when the act is Buck Owens. And I said, well, I kind of like Buck Owens. I mean, that's okay. And I wasn't, didn't care anyway, because I was just going to ride the roller coaster. So who cared? So we got there, I went out and there was a matinee and a, you know, just the regular evening performance. So I went to ride the roller coaster and he was talking to the fair manager backstage. We went backstage and then I left to go to the Midway. So I had to be backstage again before the second show because we were going to leave. He was going to make sure the second show went off okay and then go back, head back to L.A., which, as you know, is about an hour and a half, two-hour drive. So I was hurrying because I had been riding and riding and riding the roller coaster over and over, just handing the ticket, staying on the roller coaster. I love roller coasters. And finally, it was time I had to be back into the backstage part where the offices were. And I ran in, <laughs> ran in and rounded a corner and bam, ran smack into this very solid person and looked, as you know, I'm not, I'm 5'3", I'm, I'm not very tall. And I, I all of a sudden looking up, 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 and it was Buck Owens. <laughs> oh, of all the people I could run into, you know, here, this is Buck Owens. And Buck in his hat, cowboy, big cowboy hat and boots, because it would have been, have been about 6'6". Six, six. So he really was imposing. And he, he, he kind of leaned back. He said, excuse me. <laughs> All of a sudden, Bill, my manager, was there beside me. Now I'm standing in front of Buck Owens. Of course, any good manager would have run up at that point. And he said, hey, Buck. And Buck's manager was with, with him. And they all shook hands. And he said, this is Vicki Hallman. She's a really good little country singer and you could use a girl in your act. And I kind of looked at him funny because I was not a country singer at all. I had been a rock singer and then I had started doing great American songbook standards with Bob Hope. So I, I, that hit my ear funny. I didn't even know what he was talking about, country singer. And uh, Buck said, well, he said, I do need a girl in my act because Buck always had a girl in his act. But that at that point, he did not. So he said, Jack, let's let's round up Don and his guitar and take her into the dressing room and see how she sounds. So I'm hearing all of this 
but it really wasn't registering because it was just, I, I couldn't make sense of what was going on. You know, it was, well, it was weird. So we all went in a dressing room and I remember I hopped up on the counter in the dressing room and kind of was just sitting there, my little ponytail self. And Buck had a red, white, and blue guitar in his hand. And here comes this tall guy with another guitar. And he sat down and Buck said, hey, Don, this is this is Vicki Holman. She's going to sing for us. And I thought, all of a sudden, it's dawning on me that they're expecting me to actually sing in this dressing room. And Buck said, well, what do you want to sing for us? And I, I, I thought, uh, because I was not a country singer and I knew he was country. Thought, okay, he wants me to sing a country song, and I don't know. And I thought and thought, couldn't remember any country song that I knew all the words to until out of my mouth came, Help Me Make It Through the Night, Key of A. Well, it's, it wasn't a country song when I remembered it on the radio. It was on pop stations, but it is a country song. So I sang it, and when I got through, he said, Oh, that was really good. Come out and sing it with us. Well, it's a 5,000 seat audience. So I just said, well, like Kathy Matea, who used to be my next door neighbor said, wow. <laughs> she said, wow. I said, I said, okay. She said, you said, okay. And I was like, well, yeah, what would you have done? And she said, I would have asked him if I could send him a demo tape. And I was like, yeah, you wouldn't have gotten the gig, Kathy. <laughs> that would not have worked. So anyway, I said, okay, you know, just like that. And he said, so oh, I'm going to go out now and sing with them. And I sing that song with them. And I, my only question was, okay, I've been riding these rides. My hair is everywhere. I have on no makeup. You know, I went downstairs. There was a troupe of solid gold dancers. Remember that show, The Dancers? And asked them if, if I could borrow some makeup. And so they fixed me up. They were all, oh, you know, they're all excited. <laughs> they were fixing it. So they fixed me and did my hair. And, stuff. and that was fun. So went out on stage, sang the song. And with some urging from Buck, the audience gave me a standing ovation. You know how he would he would say, hey, Vicky Holland, let's give her a big round of applause. You know, all that. Picking it up. And, and they stood up and I'm, I'm like waving by and all and walking off. And all of a sudden he said, they want to hear another one. <laughs> oh, no. I couldn't think of the first one. I barely thought of that one. Now I've got to think of another one right here in front of these people. So I just, God was with me, I guess. I said, when will I be loved? Which was there again, sound of a country rock song. He said, what key? And I said, I don't know, just play it. <laughs> so they played it and they played it in my key because he had such an ear. He could tell from how I sang the other song, what key to do that. Of course, no, they all, they could do that. Absolutely. So I sang it and ran on this time. He let me get off the stage and I stood in the wings. And when he came off stage, I stepped forward and said, thank you very much. And he said, well, you did a really good job. And he said, we'll be in touch and left. My manager said, no, don't get excited. And he really talked to me on the way home. He was like, you know, that wasn't a job offer. And I don't want you to get all excited because, you, you know, da, da, da. and I knew that. I mean, I knew it wasn't a job offer. I wasn't, you know, I, I had been in show business a while at that point. So the next day, Buck Owens called and said, I like the way you sing. and." I'd like to hear you in the studio. He said, uh, can you get up to Bakersfield? And I said, uh, he said, can, yeah, can you, yeah, can you get up to Bakersfield? And I said, sure. I did not know where Bakersfield was and I did not have a car. But <laughs> what do you say when Buck Owens says, come sing? So I took the bus to Bakersfield and he hired me as his opening act. And then ultimately as one of, as the female vocalist with the Buckaroos. So I had two gigs. We recorded a record together. I sang back, backing vocals on several of his songs, but um, we, we recorded a record called Let Jesse Rob the Train, which made the uh, top 40 and really good song. So I went to Hee Haw with him to you know sing with the Buckaroos in his spot, which is Buck's place. And before I knew it, the Sam Lovello, your friend, was coming to me and saying, hey, um, we want to try you out in some comedy with Buck in the haystack. So did a couple of haystacks, which were things where there were two people lying in the hay and we told a joke. It was like, you know, yeah, that. 
And um, the guy who wrote it, the writer, comedy writer, Bud Wingard, came up to me later and he said, well, you really you really pulled one on me. He said, I thought, oh, this is some singer who wouldn't know punchline if it smacked her in the face. He said, I pulled out the worst old joke I had because I, I didn't think that it would ever make it onto the, you know, onto the screen. And he said, I'll be darned if you didn't save it. <laughs> and they used it and they hired me as one of the honeys, long story short. And so now I'm on, you know, on Hee Haw doing the music with Buck. I think I'm the only female on the show who was full-time music cast and full-time comedy cast. We had, a, we had two separate casts, basically. And I was both. So it was 11 years that I was on Hee Haw and that was very good. So I guess we can, yeah, from there, that's how I got to Hee Haw. All right. So you got to tell this great story about this new, new old album. This floored me. And I think people are going to be blown away. By the way, I just want to say there's so much magical angel dust all over everything you've done to this point. And, and this is the coup d'etat. I, I realize you'd have to be spiritual based on your life you don't even have to be a believer you just have all these experiences but this one is just it's mind-blowing it is mind-blowing i mean this is nothing short of a miracle the odds of this happening um, and mathematically somebody told me they said well actually it's zero <laughs> odds of zero that would happen okay so back in 1982 we're not backtracking much because i met buck in 1979 and in 1982 actually i think it was late 81 but he called me one morning i remember i know exactly where i was all that kind of thing and said uh you know i've got a song that's going around in my head and he said jim shaw who was the keyboardist with the buckaroos wrote it and he said we cut it on another girl one time and he said it just didn't work out, but I still think it's a hit song and I want to cut it on you. In fact, I want to cut a whole album on you. So I said, as I had when he wanted me to sing, I said, okay, you know, everything went over my head at that point. I didn't realize what kind of breaks I was getting. I really wish I had known more how fortunate I really was back then. Now I know I'm old enough to know now. So, and that's a good thing. So I, I said, fine. And we started going into the studio in Bakersfield. He had a beautiful recording studio and huge complex there. And, and it's, it's still there. I mean, it's all amazing museum, everything. So we went in and, and cut a whole album, 10 songs. And then <laughs> the bad, the good, that was the good part. We finished it. It was mastered, but he was going through, he and I both started really going through difficult personal things, I guess you'd say. His really had to do with career. He was going through a mid, I call it a mid-career crisis. He just couldn't figure out what, 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 what am I going to be now that I, he wasn't really having the recording, you know, in the charts action that he had once had. In fact, he canned a whole project of his. He had just cut a new album that was never released until he died. Victoria, was this after his friend died though? Because when Mr. Rich died, he was crushed. Yeah, Don Rich. Oh, he was crushed, but, but that wasn't all everything. I mean, yes, everybody talks about that was a huge, huge thing for Buck. That was 1974. So that had been, you know, five, six years before. And that, well, but what people don't realize is that Don Rich got killed and Buck's father and I think his brother, too, all died right within just a very short time. And I've had that happen in my family. And that that's hard to get through when you have people that close leave, you know, <laughs> when you weren't expecting it. So he was going through, he had lost Don. His muse, Don in a way was his, his musical muse. And it's, it's, you know, so anyway, he was going through, he didn't know what to do now. And he was really, you know, kind of getting depressed and stuff. And I was going through a marriage crisis and getting a divorce. And it was, it was just... A bad time with all that going on we really just let that album fall through the cracks believe it or not just never did anything with it i mean just a whole album of, of great music anyway so um i ended up moving from los angeles to nashville in 1986 and we i would hear from buck every now and then you know we, but not you know we kind of got out of touch and Years went by and I kind of forgot about the album, didn't think about it anymore. Then in 2006, when Buck died, 
he had become all what he always hoped would happen actually had happened and happened more once he died. He became cool with the young people and everybody thought he was just the coolest thing that had ever been, you know, all this. And he had kind of lost the he, he feared that he had made him a joke, which was not true. But that's how he felt. So now he's really cool again and, every, you know, all these young, cool people and artists are coming out doing tribute albums to Buck Owens and that. So I called Jim Shaw, who was now and is still the head of uh, Buck Owens studio, his production company, all that. He was one of the Buckaroos when I was one of the Buckaroos. And I said, hey, Jim, don't you think we should, you know, remember that album that we cut back in 1982, Buck produced on me? And he said, yeah, I guess I do. I wrote four of the songs and Jim co-produced it, actually, and was the engineer on the album. So he remembered it quite well. And I said, well, don't you think now that we've got, you know, that when we cut the album, the only option any of us saw was to get it on a major label. You know, that was just what people like us did. Now things, you know, fast forward 2006. Now people, even big stars, are just putting out their own records. Yeah, just we've got the Roger McGuinn is an acquaintance of mine. And he he for many years has been doing all his own albums on his computer. You know, that's that's a doable thing now. Is that Roger from the Birds? Yeah. Oh, he's a great musician and he's been doing things on his computer for a long time now. Maybe maybe I'm not supposed to tell that. But um anyway, he was encouraging me to you know do do sing do do it that way. But Jim and I, you know, said, decided that, yes, we put it out, whether it's on a label, whether we do it, whatever, it should be put out now. And he said, well, let me, you know, let me go into the archives and find the master and, and we'll do it. So called me back a couple of days later and said, well, I have bad news. Leanne, who was Buck's assistant, and I have turned this studio and the archives at this whole place upside down. We have searched everywhere. and you're master is nowhere to be found and he said that is unheard of because i mean we just wouldn't have gotten rid of that you know he was stunned and i was stunned (laughs) so i started he said you must have it and i was like i i don't (laughs) you know i would know it if i had it but he insisted they didn't have it i didn't have it i started even calling friends from back then saying do you have that cassette I gave you? You know, because I would give friends my cassettes when we would record parts of it. And nobody had a cassette. Of course, they didn't. It had been, this is now 2006. From 1982 to 2006, nobody had their cassette. So I had to just come to terms with the fact that this fabulous thing that Buck Owens had produced on me was lost forever. And so we just kind of, you know, then one day Jim did call and say, you know what, that he had found the four songs he had written in a separate file, a separate place, I guess at his home, where he kept songs that he wrote. You know, it just had nothing to do with me. It wasn't filed under me in any way. It was just songs he wrote. So we did have four. We had those four. And we started thinking I had contributed to and I thought, well, I might have a tape somewhere of those two. So he said, well, if we could find six, we could do an EP. So he and I, the point is we were back in touch looking for the two that I had so we'd have enough for an EP, which actually never happened because I never even found those two others. But we were still in touch. So meantime, we said, well, never going to happen. <laughs> this just isn't meant to be. We'll just leave it alone. And we said, goodbye project. 2019, I had moved from Nashville to Birmingham. Um, I got a message, you know, I wrote a book, I wrote a book called Hollywood Lights, Nashville Nights. And I joined the Authors Guild in New York. And I got a message from them one day that there was someone named Joe Ornelas, who wanted to get in touch with me. I had never heard of him, but I didn't think there was anything wrong with having them forward the email. Yeah, that's okay. So they did. And this guy was saying that he was a record collector and he had found an album of mine at a yard sale in Los Angeles, specifically in Los Feliz. And would I be interested in buying it? And I thought, album? Well, I had done a local album in Birmingham 
1978 or 77. So I thought, well, maybe it's that album. And I would like to have a copy. I only had one copy. So I thought, well, yeah. I said, well, what album is it? Because I thought it could be another person with my name. You know, there that could be too. And he said, well, let me send you the songs that are on it. So the next day, I think it was, I was in my car waiting for my husband to come out of the store and he sent me this email and I started reading the names of the songs. And I literally, I hate to say I started screaming, but it was more like she shrieking with wonder and delight. It was the long lost Buck Owens produced album. But now think about this. How could that be? Because the album was never released. So I, I, I mean, it was one of those surreal moments when these are the songs. He says he's got an album, but it's an impossibility. You know, it's just no. so as it turned out, it was an album, sort of. Many people don't know what an acetate is, but an acetate is sort of an old fashioned disc that looks just like a black in you know, a vinyl album, but it's not made out of that kind of vinyl. It's made out of I think they have a metal core or something like that. And then it's coated with acetate, never meant to be played more than like three times. They're very fragile. They break easily. I mean, you, they crack, they, they get scarred. They're, they're just something that people really weren't using in those days, except Buck Owens did, I found out. He always wanted to hear what he produced on a turntable, on a record. So he would always make an acetate. So there's the acetate that Buck Owens made of what he produced on me, found by a record collector at a garage sale who got in touch with me and sent it to me. So now we've got the whole album, which we thought was lost forever and certainly by all rights should have been. That is a miracle. There's no way to call it anything but a miracle. Aren't you still blown away when you tell it? You've told me already, and I still can't believe it, hearing it again. I've got chills right now. Of course I am. I'm tears in my eyes. It's like, well, one, one quote that's in the liner notes, I think you saw the liner notes, that I said to Randy Poe wrote the liner notes, for, we'll get, we'll fast, we'll go forward with what's really happened with the album. I said to him, I said, I just really feel like Buck Owens is up there somewhere pulling strings. And I do. <laughs> I feel like he said, okay, you didn't appreciate it before, which I didn't. But I'm old enough now, I, I understand what a thing it is to have this wonderful album that Buck Owens produced. I'm really loving it now. So, yeah, it's, it's a miracle. And it happened to me. And... Then there's another little one. I don't know if I told you about this before, but about being with Omnivore Recordings. But hang on one second, because you're already reading my mind about Buck being pulling strings. I have to ask, has his spirit ever come to you? Do you ever have a dream that's really realistic? And there's Buck Owens. And has he touched you since he crossed over to the other side? I feel his spirit all the time. As if, and I had a, and people now people are saying, oh, they're getting a little woo-woo on me, but I, I really do. I, I live with, you know, that thing, I see dead people. I live with dead people all the time. I mean, I feel people with me all the time and things, you know, um, my, my family and Buck. And I have had a psychic in, in Nashville. And if I told you the things that she told me that actually came through, it's just incredible to believe the things that she knew. She was at my house one day and she told me that Buck Owens was standing by the, but right over by my piano with the keys. I was like, oh, good. <laughs> hey, Buck. Can we pause? We got to pause it there because I want to chime in. And I don't think anyone dies. They change. My parents have both passed away in the last couple of years. I see them while I sleep. And I'm not going to call it a dream because when I asked my dad about it, he said, this is an interdimensional interaction. And we're wearing our Earth costumes, so we're easily recognizable. And then he laughed. I have dinner with them, coffee. I hug them. I drive around. We discuss stuff. They give me advice. I cry. I miss them. I hug them goodbye. And I come back here. It's no different than talking to you or going down to the publics. It's just a different reality. And the more people I have been that I have shared my truth with, 
and I don't think bravely because I don't really care what people think, they will then tell me their stories. And I had a median on the show. And then after the show, she said, I have to read for you. Parents are with me. She didn't know anything. She told me stuff there's no way she could know. And then she predicted some things, but she said, I didn't predict them. My parents told me. And they happen within two weeks. I mean, very specific things. So if you're listening, you're not crazy if you're. this is your reality. That's right. I think people just don't talk about it so much because they think people will think they're crazy. And yeah, I live with my family and you know, I, I have hardly any immediate family left at all. One sister actually. But um, yeah, so they're with me all the time and I talk to them just as if, you know, I just have this running conversation with my family and with Buck, you know, the things will happen. I'll go, thanks Buck, you know, um, yeah, solving problems for me and telling me the way to handle things. And I think I think he was the one who told me where to do, where to take this album and what to do with it. And I'll tell you why, why, why I think that. Are we ready to go there? Do it. I'm just sitting here on the edge of my seat with a bunch of goosebumps. Okay, great. And well, I'm glad about your family. Just know that you you and I are doing the same stuff with our families all the time. Okay, so now I've got the album. Well, now what do I do with it? And there are options, as we mentioned a few minutes ago. I could release it myself if I wanted to. That's easy to do these days. It's uh, until you get to trying to actually break through and make somebody actually hear the album and, and you know, do anything spectacular with it, which I like to do everything in a spectacular way. I really felt that this was not only a legacy for me, it was a legacy for Buck. And I wanted to do this album as art I really wanted it to be from from cover to cover to everything about it I wanted art so I started looking online to think okay I, I wanted I wanted to go with an album I mean with with a label who though so I started looking at uh, labels that put out historic recordings and I found several that actually in Nashville, I knew people or I knew people who knew those people, you know, they were familiar to me and I could easily just get with them and say, here's what I've got. But there was one in, out of Los Angeles. Now, remember, I've been in Nashville for like 30 years now and, and Birmingham and Muscle Shoals. So I've got other things that are closer. There was one based in Los Angeles. Everything they did won a Grammy, it seemed to me. <laughs> and they were just fabulous. And even their name was cool, Omnivore, because they like all kinds of music. They don't just, they're not, you know, a genre label. And they're, just everything about them was cool. They were the ones I wanted. Yeah, I wanted them. But looking a little further on their website, I came outside, okay, well, I need to find how to get in touch with somebody, I guess. There was no way to get in touch with anyone. And it even said, we do not, you know, develop artists. I, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know exactly what it said. Uh, it was a sort of, if you are thinking about trying to get in touch with us, stop right now. You know, kind of thing. It actually did say, if you think you are an exception, you are not. And I thought, well, they don't seem very friendly. And clearly I thought I was an exception, but Clearly, I'm not. Okay, then I'll go. You know, I'll just do this thing with the Muscle Shoals or the Nashville and the people I know. So I, I went away and I, I did find a, a label that I thought, okay, this is not perfect. But if I keep, you know, just looking and da -da -da, I'm never going to get it done. So I'm going to sign with this label. I had picked one that I would sign with. And we were about to do it and we had hammered out a deal. And I was about to quit send on an email telling her, this woman with this other label, that I wanted, yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. And all of a sudden, this voice, Buck Owens, <laughs> said, you know you want Omnivore. <laughs> like, yeah, I want Omnivore, but they don't want me. <laughs> they they're not friendly. And then the, the voice said, well, what have you got to lose? You know, all they can say is no or just not get back to you. You could at least contact them. And I thought, well, I don't know how to contact them. They didn't give me a contact number, you know, on that website. And then I thought, well, then voice told me one other thing. If you don't try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering what might have been. So I thought, okay. 
Now, I don't check my messenger messages because it's mostly a lot of hee-haw fans that I don't even know. Sorry, hee-haw fans. I love you, but I get too many messenger messages. And LinkedIn, same thing. I, you know, that's more, to me, that's more like business people and stuff. Although Roger McGuinn's on there. Um, so I thought, well, I could try LinkedIn. I could try Messenger. And who knows? Then I could at least say I tried. So back when Buck cut this album on me, Billboard ran a little blurb saying Buck Owens and Jim Shaw are recording Jesse Rose McQueen. That was my stage name back then at Buck Owens Studios in Bakersfield, California. I did a screenshot. You can still find every billboard online. You know, I did a screenshot of that little blurb and put it at the top of a messenger message. And then I wrote, would you be interested in this long lost Buck Owens produced, never released album? I am Jesse Rose McQueen, and I sent it to Cheryl Pavelski, who is the founder and head of um, Omnivore Recordings. I bet she got back to me within an hour and said, yes, indeed, we would. Well, here's the interesting thing. Uh, and oh, oh it's, it's art. I mean, I can't wait for everybody to see it. It's, it's, it's just gorgeous. They have done an amazing, amazing thing with this album. I could not be happier. I mean, we, that was in, at the end of July and by September, I was out in Los Angeles meeting with them and shooting some B-roll and that kind of thing to put it out. So it, it will be coming out on Record Store Day, April 22nd. I mean, it was a Record Store Day selection. And I it's hard to explain Record Store Day, but it's a big deal to be selected by this universal group called Record Store Day. It's independent uh, record sellers, basically, who have gotten together to make themselves more powerful. And one day a year, they select the albums that are going to be their special selections for that coming year, and mine was one of them. So that's all very exciting because that's coming right up. But interestingly, about being out in Los Angeles, you know, I don't know if you know about Buck Owens' running feud sort of with Nashville. I've heard whispers about it. Is it real? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's real. I heard it talked about, but there's always a lot of gossip. And I didn't know if what was true and what is it. You know, I've worked in the entertainment business for 20 years. And some of the stuff's true. Some of it you never hear of. And it really is really true. And some of the things I heard when I asked the people directly, they're like, oh, no, that nonsense has been around forever. I didn't know the Buck Owens national thing for sure because I never talked to Buck about it. So I couldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I talked to Buck about it a lot. So, yeah. Uh, well, yes, I did. He um, and, and uh, Randy Poe, who wrote Buck's who wrote my liner notes, but also wrote Buck's autobiography posthumously. I mean, that is so weird, but but he did. He he said to me, he was like, well, I know that was real. And he said, I'm glad to hear you verified that that feud was real. I wouldn't call it a feud towards the end, but I mean, it's not like he hated everybody in Nashville. Nashville was not welcoming to Buck when Buck first came out. You know, he started as a studio musician in Los Angeles with Capitol. That's how he became a star. He was a studio musician and he was a California guy. He was a Los Angeles guy. And Nashville did not even consider him country. You know, he had he brought in electric guitars to country music. Buck Owens did that. Yeah, but they always looked for reasons to not like anybody, whether it was Olivia Newton-John from Australia or The Outsider or Randy Travis wasn't country enough until he got to be famous. And then Garth was this and Clint Black was that. It, it's very provincial and it circles the wagons until you start making a ton of money and then everybody wants to be a part of it or copy it. Well, and I'm not sure they ever did with Buck because he when he he had 21 number one hits and right in the middle of all of that, the CMA awards, you know, they, they just ignored him forever. So guess who founded the Academy of Country Music Awards? People don't know this, and I'm not sure why. Buck Owens founded that. Buck Owens, yeah, they, so they said, well, we'll just have our own award show out here in California. So they did that. And anyway, it's just, and he 
the, you remember I mentioned a minute ago that he was working on an album when when my album uh, during this time period that he never he decided he didn't want to be released he didn't want to do it he finished his own album that he never did anything with and he had recorded part of that album in Nashville which he's is a thing he said he would never do but he did and I really think that was probably the main reason he never allowed that album to be released. Uh, he just could never quite get past that Nashville rejection early on. You know, he, he just couldn't, couldn't get over that. So he still wanted to do everything in California. He built his, his, he erected this major club and all that and stayed right in California pretty much, you know, for the rest of his life. Well, where am I now? I'm with a label in Los Angeles, California. Now, if you don't think Buck Owens had something to do with that, <laughs> it would have been so easy for me to go to some of these labels in Nashville or Muscle Shoals. Well, I guess he wouldn't have minded Muscle Shoals so much, but no, he wanted me back in California fight where he started how does it feel to have a new record out after all this time and in such magical miraculous fashion it feels amazing i mean i just i keep telling people this is the most exciting thing or the most excited i've ever been about anything in my career and people are like really you know because i've done a lot of things obviously I mean, we've talked yeah, we've left out we have to leave out lots of things i've done because it's just so long but people are stunned when I say that. I'm like, no, no, no. This is the most exciting and the most excited I've ever been. And I think it's because, first of all, it was lost. And I had been heartbroken when I realized when you really lose something forever. I mean, it's kind of like your parents coming back to life for you. You know, it's like this, this thing is back. I feel like, you know, that, that Buck has given it back to me. And I think it's sort of, he knew that the time was right now for this. So although I was kind of too young back then to really appreciate this amazing thing that was happening with the album, now I realize how wonderful it is and what a big deal it is. So I'm over the moon all the time and every day it's another, you know, wonderful thing. Like they just, um, and they're always surprising me, you know, because I did sign with a label and and I am. They surprised me by when I got the album and saw it for the first time. I was put on as co-producer with Cheryl Pabelski and Randy Poe. We're the three producers. I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I, I you know, which was great. And I just received the actual album to see how beautiful it is in person i mean they, well they sent me they sent me a, a carton of them for my for my own personal you know, personal use which was a surprise i wasn't expecting that so it's like every day there's another oh i just got a um oh yeah today right before right before we started this i got a text or, some, or maybe an email from my um publicist in new york actually omnivore he works for omnivore but he's assigned to me that he that the Bakersfield Californian the newspaper wants to interview me and I thought oh how cool book would just so love that you know so yeah every, you know that was just a nice little one of those little everyday surprises that happens to me now about this album so very cool it's just cool it's just cool <laughs> you know what can I say I hear the I hear the joy too, the great joy. I know I have to let you go, so I want to ask you a question in parting, because you've had such success, and I know you've had heartbreak, and everyone does here, but you've just lived, really rode the waves, and thank God you listened to your inner voice and reached out to Omnivore, and also thousands of other things you tried. We have a lot of young people who listen who have dreams, and a lot of artistic people and people that write books, and we have famous people too. But what words of wisdom having come to this place, having having had so much success, deep success, and also still have the enthusiasm, the inspiration, the joy through it all. You know, almost like if you could go back and tell 16 or 18-year-old you some things because you've been here, done it, what would you tell the listeners all over the world as a way to kind of give them a gift here that they can apply to their own lives? Okay. Um, yeah. Keep at it. 
you know, believe in yourself. And if you, if you must, I mean, if you really have the passion, that's the other thing. I have parents come to me sometimes. I just had a cousin come to me and say, would you talk to my granddaughter? Because she's so talented, but I just can't get her interested and excited in having a, a singing career. And I said, well, then don't. If, you, if you, you've got to have that burning, that passion, you've got to feel the magic. And if you feel that magic, Keep at it. Be tenacious. I, in fact, I have a story about a girl. It's a quick story. When I moved to Los Angeles and there was a, a very cute girl that used to kind of hang out with me at the pool. Betsy, if you're listening, you know who you are. She was from Texas. Betsy was from Texas. I was from Alabama. So we hung out. She was a singer. I never heard Betsy sing, but I knew she must be good because she'd had a, a good a good career in Texas. She had had a band and been, you know, working a lot and all that. Then one day I went out and she said, well, this is the last time I'll see you. I'm going back to Texas. And I, I said, really? Why? And she said, oh, it's just too hard. And I've got a good band back in Texas. So I'm just going to go home. Well, you know, she was probably very good and she hadn't been there even a year in Los Angeles. So you know, I stayed. It seems a long time. It seems to take a long time. And sometimes it does. But if you give up, <laughs> you're not going to make it. If you keep at it, you might. And if you quit, you'll spend as much. Tell me the rest of your life wondering what if. Give it everything you've got. If you have to do it, if you've got the passion, do it all the way and keep at it. I, and sing every chance you get. Act every chance you get. Let people see you doing what you do. Don't always think you've got to have money for it. Do it for free. Do it for nothing. Get your talent out there. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.